0: These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, And Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you to into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Uh, The second passage is 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 to 12, and that's on page 1220 of the church Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 to 12. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation.
1: in paper up here. Right, there we are. Found what I'm looking for. If you have got a Bible, keep that open in front of you. We're going to look at both those passages today, but mainly we're going to be in the one in 1 Peter. So if you have to choose, stay there. We're thinking at the moment about what it means to be a church that cares. We were thinking last week about what it means to be a church we care about, being disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, how we encourage one another, how we love one another, how we spur one another on in love and good deeds. That being why we gather Sunday by Sunday that actually as we come in here, we're to consider how to do that. But the next few weeks, actually, we stop looking in at ourselves and more out there. What difference do our lives make in the world around us? How can we make an impact in this nation, and the world, but also more locally, particularly in this community and this city? So today we're going to think very briefly, what does it mean to be a church that cares about this community and this city? Because we know who we are, what we're called to do, and why we do it. So those three things, who we are, what we're called to do, and why we're called to do it. So I hope that's quite straightforward, and we'll work through each of those things. Before we think about ourselves, though, I want to ask you another question. What do you think people out there think about us? I mean, this morning, as we meet, several hundred people, and I can see some of them, will be walking up and down. What do you think they think about us? You might think, well, they're probably quite negative. I don't know what your experience is of people you know and what they think about the Christian faith. Um, Actually, a survey was done once in 2015, again in 2022, finding out what do people think about us. And that survey was called Talking Jesus. And it's what people in the UK think of Jesus, Christians and evangelism, so I'm sharing our faith with them. Church... And Christianity as an idea didn't come out very well at all. A lot of mentions of kind of hypocrisy and narrow-mindedness and coldness. That was the impression of the church and Christianity. But when it came to individual Christians and Christian friends, people's responses were actually quite different. That's what's on the screen there now. They did something clever in this survey. There are people who call themselves Christians still in this country, many of them, who never go anywhere near church, they never read their Bibles, they never pray, they just wear the label Christian. It's worth knowing that when you hear that evangelical Christians support Donald Trump in America. You need to dig under that. That isn't true. If you want to know more, come and see me afterwards. I don't have time to unpack that now, but that simply isn't the case. Active evangelical Christians are not all rabid Trump supporters. That that isn't the case. People wear the label of evangelical in America, like people over here might say they're Church of England because they were baptized as babies, or they got married in an Anglican church. It's a label, and you've got to get under the label. And that's what this survey did extremely well just by defining what they meant by a, a Christian. They didn't look at what people believed. What they just said was this. We want to look at active Christians, people who are active in their faith. And many of you in this room would fall into this bracket. Maybe all of you, I don't know. They define an active Christian as someone who goes to church once a month at least. So once a month church attendance, counting that as regular, and read their bible or prayed at least once a week that was their working definition so they went to church at least once a month and they prayed or read their bible at least once a week and then they asked the people out there do you know anyone like that do you know anyone And just over half the population of the UK, 53%, said, yeah, I know someone who goes to church at least once a month, and I know they read their Bible and they pray. And then they said some lovely things about those people. So much so, that I was was at a meeting with Alan yesterday, and he said they were so unsure of these results, they repeated everything, because they thought they must have got it wrong. And people said of the Christians they knew, the words they used were friendly and caring. And I like the fact they said good-humored. It's kind of unexpected, but that's what a lot of people said. And the negative things they said about church, actually of individual Christians they knew, they didn't think many were narrow-minded or um, hypocritical or homophobic. That, That was quite an unusual thing for people to think who actually knew an active Christian. And perhaps the most amazing thing of all was when they said, you've obviously talked with this person about their faith. In 2015, one in five people said, following that conversation, I wanted to know more about Jesus. When they repeated it in 2022, one in three people who had spoken to a Christian friend about their faith, said, I wanted to know more about Jesus. Following that conversation, I wanted to know more about him. I don't know about you, but I find that heartening. I think mean, I can often feel like the whole world's against us and that we're a tiny little number and that the numbers are shrinking. Do you know the number of active Christians hasn't shrunk at all in the UK? It's about 6%. And it's been that for a while. And that's across all generations. It's not that the older folks are generally propping up the church. Younger people also make up that 6%. It's fairly even. So when we're thinking about what does the world out there think of us, I don't think we need to be as frightened as we often are or as scared of what people are going to think and say. There are people who don't like Christianity. There are people who don't like the church. But there are plenty of people who like you. And that is a wonderful thing and a great place to start when it comes to sharing our faith. If we're going to be a church that cares about this community in this city, it's not primarily by just dishing out information to people. It's by getting to know them and sharing our lives with them. And once we do, we can share the love of Jesus with them. So we need to be clear of three things, who we are, what we're called to do, and why we should do it. And thankfully... 1 Peter answers all of those questions. So get those verses, open 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. And let's first of all think about who we are. It begins with the word, but, did you see that? But you are a chosen race. And the reason it says but, is because in the verses leading up to that, Peter's talking about people who don't believe in Jesus. And then he flips it and says, but for those of you that do, here are some things you need to know about who you are. You are, he says, first of all, a chosen race. Now, in the Old Testament, the chosen race were the people of Israel. And Peter, all the way through here, is sort of saying, in the past before Jesus came, Israel had special blessings. But now, they belong to you as Christian people. You are a chosen race. And I love that expression, because it takes us right back to when Israel was declared to be a chosen race, They were on the brink of coming into the promised land, and God spoke to them through Moses. And he said these words. He said, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And then I love this follow-up line. God says to them, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord said his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you. Don't you love that? It sort of punches pride. You might think, well, being chosen and special would make people proud. And the Lord says, it's not because there was anything special about you. There weren't loads of you. You weren't better than other people. It's simply because I loved you. If you want to know why... It's out of my heart of love. I loved you because I chose to love you. Peter says something similar, actually. Um, We've sung these words more or less today as well. In verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. The choice that God set on us wasn't because of anything in us. The Bible actually says he set his love on us before he even made the world. We had done nothing. And actually everything that we have done would have cut us off from him. But we've received mercy. The Bible actually says that God demonstrates his love for people like you and me. And that while we were still sinners, while we were at our very worst, Jesus Christ died for us. So that God's mercy could be extended to us. And when it says we're a chosen race that doesn't mean any more that we're one people group at all. Christians are drawn from many different nations even in this room looking around I can't quickly do the maths but I reckon there's at least half a dozen or more different nations represented just in the small gathering here. It's a good thing. An exciting thing. So we're not a chosen race in the sense that we're all British or we're all American or These days, all Chinese, seeing as China will soon have more Christians than any other nation on earth if it doesn't already. We're not that. We're drawn from many different nations and peoples. But here's the thing. God's always divided humanity in two. In the Old Testament, it was Jews, Jewish people who knew him, and Gentiles, all the other nations who didn't. And today he does the same. He says there are people that know him and belong to him and are part of his kingdom. And then there's everybody else. That's why we're a chosen nation. But Peter carries on. He says, You want to know who you are, Christian? You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Again, he's thinking about the Old Testament. Out of all the nations, Israel was drawn to be holy, but also have a very special role. Just as they stood at Mount Sinai, you might know the story where the Ten Commandments were given. Just before that happened, God explained what their role would be. He says this in Exodus 19. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you see, it's the same sort of language, the same sort of words, the same sorts of ideas. They were going to be a kingdom or a royal priesthood, priesthood before God, a holy nation chosen by God, set apart to be priests. Not that all of them would work in the temple any more than today. Most people work in the church. And in fact, the only two people that work for the church are me and Sam here today, but you're all here. And Peter doesn't just say it's people who work for the church, in some way, who are priests. He says, "We're all priests. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are those who have access to God. Jess has reminded that already today. We have special access. We're able to talk to God anytime, any place, anywhere. And we're also able to explain to others how they can have access to God. In a sense, we stand in that place where we can receive good things from God and actually show others where those good things have come from and say, come on, see this God who loves like no other. You are, Peter says, chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that all sounds good, doesn't it? We belong to God in a special and unique way. Verse 11, he says we're beloved. But then here's the question. If we have all of these great blessings, why is life so hard? When you expect, and some people preach like this, don't they? If you really know this God, your life will be sorted. Can I just look around the room and tell you, out of all of you I know, none of you have a sorted life. There's one or two here I don't know well enough. You may be unique. But everyone else I know in here is messed up or broken in some way and has had life hard. Some of you really hard. Some of you recently really hard. Does that mean you don't really know this God? Because wouldn't you expect us to have the deluxe pamper package based on what's said here? You know, we're the most blessed people on earth. And yet Christians are often some of the most broken people I know people really struggling. Struggling with themselves, struggling with their circumstances, struggling in relationships, struggling financially, struggling with their health. Struggling. How can that be? Well, I think we can see why that is here in this passage in verse 11. Beloved, you're dearly loved. And then it says, I urge you, The sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. What does it mean? We're sojourners and exiles. Here's the thing in a nutshell, it means we're not yet at home. We're not yet at home. We live away from where we were meant to be. We live here. We're not yet home. And here Peter's thinking about that other passage that Jez read for us back in Jeremiah chapter 29. God's people Israel had all of those blessings, but they didn't follow up on them. And God sent them because of their sin into exile. Now what's happened to us has nothing to do with our sin, but for them it did. They wouldn't actually follow the God who had done all these things for them and God warned them again and again and again. And then about 600 years before Jesus came, God raised up a superpower, the Babylonians, sort of modern day Iraq. And they came in on a number of attacks into Israel. And they killed people. And they took people into exile. In fact, what we might say is they came into Israel and they took people hostage. They treated them brutally. Terribly. In some of the ways we've been hearing about in our news. And others they just removed from their home and they brought them on the journey into modern day Iraq. And they were held there. And each and every one of those people knew they were not at home. They'd lost family and loved ones. Some of them were separated from parents Some of them were very young when they were taken. And the hope initially, as I think it often is when things go wrong in our lives, is, Lord, please put everything back together just as it was as quickly as possible. So if you're ever sick, please make me well. If anything goes wrong with the car, please make the car better. Do you know what I mean? We we pray those sort of prayers. And the truth is, often God doesn't answer them in the way that we expect. Often those seasons are longer than we would like. And for these exiles it was, it was 70 years. They were told, you will be kept there. Generations will be born away from home. 70 years essentially is a lifetime for most of us, isn't it? That's what they were told. Your life will be lived in exile. Brothers and sisters, can we just think about that for a moment? Unless Jesus Christ comes again... That's how we'll live. Our lives will be lived in exile, away from our home with God, here. But I want to tell you this, here's a plan and a purpose for keeping us here for as long as he chooses. So that's the second thing. What are we called to do, therefore, while we live as these blessed people with all of these blessings in exile? What are we called to do? And again, Peter tells, he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, here's where it is, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter says here, you live in exile, of so blessed people, and your job is to tell people, How you came to know this God. How he rescued you from the darkness of sin and death and despair and brought you into his light and love and life. That's what you do. And Peter is thinking about the words of the Lord Jesus. He was instructing his first disciples, including Peter, and he said, you're the light of the world. That your light shine before others, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He said, that's where you're going to be. This world is full of darkness and every time we turn on our news, we see it. And sometimes in our own lives, we're deeply touched by the darkness of this world. But into that darkness, we're called to shine. And we're called to live distinctively. Look at verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So we not only have to declare with our lips and speak out how great God is, there's a sense in which our lives tell a story, don't they? Our lives show what we're really living for. And as Christians, there's a battle on. We're sometimes not very honest about that. We often like to pretend that we are very good people, respectable. But actually, beneath the surface of each and every one of us, there is a battle on, and it is lifelong. And it's a battle within ourselves for the desires that we have that aren't right. Some of those, we probably immediately think about sexual desire. And think, okay, well, we long to kind of... um, have a relationship with people, we fantasize about a relationship with people that we are in no sense married to. They are not for us to be thinking about in that way. But we think about them wrongly. But it's not just that. The desires of the flesh aren't just to do with how we use our sex and sexuality. They're to do with greed, how we use money. Money. There should be something very distinctive about the way Christians use their wealth. And yet often we just use our money for our comfort. The nicer car, the bigger house, the holiday. We're not thinking in a way that's any different to the world around us. Because we just long to be comfortable. That's a desire of the flesh, is comfort. And then when it comes to power, all of us have some power, even just in our homes or our families, some in our workplaces we do. And the way that we use that can be self-serving or it can be to serve others. And again, that's so important that when we're drawn to lust or to greed or to a selfish use of power, that we recognize that's a battle front. Because we won't live distinctively in this world if we just follow what we feel. The truth doesn't lie within. The battle lies within to be the people we're called to be. And so how do we live these sorts of lives? Well, again, I think Jeremiah's letter to these people living... As captives in Babylon, it's really helpful. I don't know if you noticed, just when Jez was reading, I don't know how familiar you are with that letter, just sort of how down-to-earth it was. So they were hoping they'd be set free. God says, no, no, you're going to spend a lifetime here. And so here's what you're supposed to do. says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Don't decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you'll find your welfare. Some of that is just so ordinary, isn't it? Go there and build a house. When, when the Jewish folks first arrived there, they tried to form their own community. Let's keep away from Babylon. Babylon. It's going to be bad. It's going to be difficult. So they settled by a canal outside of the city. And if you read Psalm 137, or, you know, Boney by the Rivers of Babylon, you know, that is where they were. And God says, no, leave there and get into the city of Babylon. Actually build a house in the city. Make your home there. Plant a garden. Get an allotment. Do a loft conversion because you're going to need one to have more children. Because you're going to be here for generations. Make it your home. And as you make it your home, what else can you do? Well, seek the welfare of the city. The word for welfare there is a very special word that doesn't translate well into English. Often it's translated peace. The actual word is shalom. It's a word that means complete wholeness complete blessing, complete peace. That's what they were to do, is to work towards the welfare of the city, to make it a better place to be, that the Lord's wholeness, his love, his peace, might be seen in that city, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, its shalom, you shall find your own shalom, your own peace. Out of all the things I've thought about this week, this is the one that struck me the most. Here were these people taken into exile against their will, who had seen relatives and loved ones killed, who had no hope of returning home, and the Lord says, pray for them. And then it reminded me of the words of the Lord Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You. Do you see, this is the ultimate act of love for enemies. There may be people who come who are hostile. There may be people who live lifestyles that we would say are not biblically right. But the place for them is here. The love they need to be shown is right here. There is no place to look at another human being made in the image of God who's come into this community with anything other than overwhelming love. To do less is to let God down, to not pray for people to come in here who don't share our values, who live a different life. is not to be a witness to this community. It's to do what the Jewish folks did and say, we're going to live outside of the city, outside of this world even if we can. We're not going to be part of it. But the Lord says, no, be part of it, but be distinctive. In the way that you run your home, in the way that you run your marriage, in the way that you are single, in the way that you raise your children, in the way that you bless your grandchildren, in the way that you act as a community, in the way that you pray, let them see the light and the love of Jesus because you are living among them but you're distinct in the way that you do it. Distinct. Because you're submitting everything to God. That's what we're called to do. Why should we do it as we finish? There's a simple answer to this, but I'm going to go further. We should do it because God told us to. Do you know what I mean? Even if he'd given us no reasons, we should still do it. You know, that, 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 that's kind of Christianity 101. God says it, therefore we should do it. He's God, we're not. Even when we don't understand, we should still do it. But the amazing thing with here is he gives us reasons, and they're three glorious ones. So here they are. Oh, there's probably more than three. Here's three I picked out. And if you've got many others, come and share them with me afterwards. Here's the first. Why should we do this so that others might come to know the living God? That's where Peter ends. He says, keep your conduct, um, uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. They were living in Gentile communities. And he's saying, be honorable there. Let them see what you're doing. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they often did, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's Peter saying there? He's saying that actually there is always pushback. You live your life as a Christian, and for some of you this is a reality day by day. There's going to be pushback. People are going to not, not like the way that you live, some of the things you say. They are going to cause offence if you're living in a way that even as kindly as you possibly can. There'll be ways in which we, we, we don't see eye to eye with the world around us. And therefore we can expect people to say things about us that we're, we're, we're evildoers or you've probably heard that sort of thing. And yet I love what it says next. They may see your good deeds that we keep on loving people even when they don't love us. That we keep on looking for opportunities to be the person at work who's kind. The person in the neighborhood who keeps an eye on the neighbors. We're not doing it to be seen. We're doing it because it's right. But people are watching you all the time and watching me. They see how we live. In school, you're the person that keeps an eye out for someone. Who's got no friends. And that might be costly, but you do it because you love Jesus. And this says here that they will actually glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? That means actually they've come to put their own faith and trust in Jesus. There's been a change in them. Do you know in Babylon were four people you may have heard of? One's called Daniel. He's the most famous. If you haven't heard of him, the other three you probably haven't heard of. But if you have heard of Daniel, you're on the right track. And he had three mates, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My friends, they settled in Babylon and they did good. They went to the University of Babylon and they worked their way up through the civil service to a point where they knew the emperor Nebuchadnezzar who had taken them into exile in the first place. Let me tell you this, Nebuchadnezzar was the Adolf Hitler of his day. And these men had access to him by simply doing their job. But when I read chapters 1 to 4 of Daniel, do you know what I see? I see the breaking of Nebuchadnezzar. I see a man who was proud and arrogant and thought he was God. And then through the witness of these people, he came face to face with the living God. And by the end of chapter 4, he declares his own heart humility before the living God that there is no other God but the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego he knows the most wicked man of his day was humbled and may well be in glory today not everyone agrees I think he is you have to read the story for yourself and see what you think I think he becomes a follower of Yahweh There's our first reason. We all have people we love who don't know Jesus, don't we? Each and every one of us. And we want them to be in heaven for all eternity, home. And it's our witness, you see, that can be used by the Lord to make a difference. That's the first reason. The second one is this, that we might know the living God better. Why does he keep us here? Well, it's so that we can get to know him and love him more. More. Some of those words from Jeremiah 29 will be on some of your fridges. I know, that's when I visit people, some of these words are very popular. Here they are. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Do you see, they were driven out of Um, their home Israel because the Jewish folks had turned their backs on God they were going through the motions of religion but their hearts were far from him and so to win their hearts back they left all of the ritual of religion behind and they were in Babylon where they had no temple where they couldn't offer sacrifices where they couldn't gather for formal worship and yet God says with all that stripped away what you're going to find is when you seek me, you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Can I say some of you are here today, maybe you don't yet know Jesus Christ. You're here today with a friend, you're here today because for some reason you just felt drawn in this morning. Happens. Seek him because you will find him when you seek him with all of your heart. You'll find he's merciful and kind and draws near to the brokenhearted. You'll find that no matter what you've done, no matter how wicked and shameful your own thoughts at times have been, that he breaks through all of that darkness and he brings mercy and forgiveness, love and light to you. And if you're here this morning, why are we still here? Wouldn't you rather be with John Carey in glory? I would. I really would. Why are we here? It's to make Jesus Christ known and it's to know him more. There used to be a Christian recording artist called Amy Grant. She used to have a song. I can't remember what it was called, but the chorus went In a little while, we'll be with the Father. Can't you see him smile? In a little while, we'll be home forever in a little while. We're just here to learn to love him, for we'll be home in just a little while. We're here to grow in our love for Jesus. And lastly, and thirdly, the final reason here, is we might live as Christ in this world. You see, when I read through this this week, I was struck again that all the blessings we have here are only ours because they were his first. Do you remember, you are a chosen race, But you are only that because Jesus was the fulfillment of everything Israel was called to be and failed to be. He was the true Israel. He is the royal priesthood. He's the one who fulfills the hope of the kingdom and of kingship and of the priesthood in the Old Testament. He is now the great high priest and he is the Messiah raised on high. He's the fulfillment of what it meant to be a holy nation. Because where Israel and Adam failed time and again, Jesus Christ never failed to be holy and live for God. He was God's special possession. At his baptism, God declared, this is my beloved son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. He was the one who came to proclaim light into this dark world to be the light of the world. He was the one who extended God's mercy to us he was the one who went through the ultimate exile he left his home in heaven to come to earth to rescue people like you and me through his bloodshed on the cross and today he says to people like you and me there's a home for you in heaven because of what i did for you in my father's house are many rooms and there's one there for you And in the meantime, live in this world as I did. My favorite story that I read in a book a couple of years ago, and I've shared it at Headley Park once, I'm going to share it here this morning, is about a pastor in the Soviet Union called Dmitry. Soviet Union, at the time, you couldn't live out your Christian faith. A meeting like this would have been illegal. And the pastor was arrested, and he was sent to prison indefinitely. But for 15 years, he made this his practice. Every morning, he got out of bed, and at the top of his voice, he sang his favorite hymn. I don't know what it was. I don't know if we sing it in English or not. After 15 years, he was told his entire family were dead. There was nothing for him outside of the prison. Would he please consider recanting his faith? And they would let him go. So originally, he signed the piece of paper and then he, he, he took it all back. He said, no, I will not. I will not recant my faith in Jesus Christ. And as a final act of defiance, he ripped a page out of his Bible and put it onto one of the pillars of the prison. And at that point, the guards thought they had enough of this man. And they took him out to execute him. And as they did... 1,500 prisoners got to their feet and sang his hymn at the top of their voices. The guards were terrified. And they looked at Dimitri again and simply said, Who are you? And he said this, I am Jesus, in your midst. I am Jesus, in your midst. In this neighborhood, in this city, in your family, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. You are Jesus in their midst. It is a high calling. But it's the one entrusted to you. Let me pray. Father God, these are amazing truths and they're hard for us to take in. But we pray, Father God, you'd help us to live humbly. Humbly dependent upon you and holy lives, even as we live in exile, away from our final home with you. Lord, this world is not our home. And yet it's the place where we live. Lord, help us to be a blessing to those around us. Help us to take your love and your light and share it, not to keep it to ourselves, but to share that love and that light and that life with others, that they might be ready for that day when you come again, to give the glory to you, we pray. Lord, work in us, that you might work through us. In Jesus' name, amen.